if we're going to decolonize, we have to say, okay, wait, what was it that we were doing as colonialists? How does that benefit us now? You are listening to Nothing Without Us, a podcast for the equity committed and the equity curious, for the leaders and shakers who have dreamed a world and in that world, equity is a tangible reality. I'm Angie Brown, an equity strategist with over 20 years in the field, and each week I will guide you through topics and conversations that touch on equity, fairness, ethics and social justice. In every episode, you'll have the chance to get equity conscious. Welcome back to the podcast. I am really happy to be talking to my friend and peer again on the podcast today, Mars Lord. Mars, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for joining me again. This season, we've been talking about a story that I was reading a few months ago around women being forced, I guess, to return to work in the early postpartum stages, around three, four months after having a baby because of the financial um, constraints crisis, really, yeah. going on in the UK and, and much of, of, of the West. And the story was focused on the UK and it was talking about um, women using food banks. And this kind of made me think about um, the situation for women that I have worked with in the past and the organisations that I work in, which tend to be schools. And what I recognised in this article was as you know, it's fascinating and, and very heartbreaking at times. It didn't necessarily depict any of the intersectional issues around that. So it was talking about women and it was talking about women in poverty. I really wanted to speak to somebody who also has an intersectional lens on matricence. And you were the person I thought of. Thank so <laughs> um, just to kind of remind leaders that we're constantly with all of these things we're bringing back, we're bringing back to, okay, yeah, but what does this look like for women who also hold this identity and this identity and this identity? Yeah. So I had this um, context, I guess, around decolonizing the idea of maternity, matricence, the whole system. And I guess if we could start there with your lens, what would you say? decolonizing maternity meant even the problem with the word decolonizing is everybody jumps on it as a thing and nobody actually did anything about it you know everyone talks about there are a, a few people who i know who were genuinely genuinely working and using decolonization to work like <clears throat> dr amali lokamaji who writes extensively about decolonizing maternity mm. To understand decolonize, well, what did it mean to colonize? So let's take the biggest example that we know, which is the British Empire going across the globe and deciding how different countries, continents, peoples should be and how to civilize them, colonize them into the British way of doing things. With maternity, what we see is uh, sort of uh, what Amali um, classes as a Euro-Americanized system. We know that maternity was built off the backs of black women, enslaved women, where they were experimented on where, without choice, without analgesia, where they were experimented on in order to formulate some of the things that we have now and use as standard in maternity. But the students that we're teaching, the doctors, the midwives, are not being told the colonists past, the, the violent, horrific way in which these things were developed. So if we're going to decolonize, we have to say, okay, wait, what was it that we were doing as colonialists how does that benefit us now? Mm. To decolonize, let me tell you what we did. Let me tell you how it happened and the impact it had. Mm. And let's look at the lasting legacy. This is what happens when you start to decolonize. First, you have to look at what colonization actually is and what it did and the effect it had. 
difficult to do because so many people immediately jump into their defensive self. Well, that was then, I don't do that. Why can't I? It's like the fact that you are benefiting from it, you need to understand what it is you are benefiting from, how it came to be and why it continues now. So if we look at um, the maternity statistics, which we've talked about before, where black women are up to five times more likely, depends on which year the report comes out and what the report is um, concentrating on. And also the fact that, as I'm seeing more and more in different areas, not all hospitals are reporting their stats. So if all the hospitals and trusts aren't reporting their stats, then how can we have accurate numbers? Yeah the discrimination. But once you start to say, okay, I use a speculum in my work, a speculum if you're a woman assigned female at birth, at some point you look had a speculum inserted so that they can give you a cervical swab. Mm-hmm. So when you learn that that speculum has come from the work of Dr. Sims, who was just barbaric, and operated on enslaved black women continually, then you say, oh, okay, this is how this thing came to be, right. But also because of the way he practiced on black bodied women, the hospital legacy of discrimination and racism and prejudice just seeps through all the teaching materials. Mm -hmm. So you're using this thing that was created in pain and violence how many people actually know how to insert it with care so that it's not causing pain and discomfort Mm. because they're taught well this is this thing and what you do is you just put it in Mm. and you don't listen to black-bodied women because they were silenced they weren't allowed to speak when it was invented and used and through medical law they don't suffer the same levels of pain. They need to be quiet. So the colonialism just just drips right the way through. Mm. So there's no, okay, hold on. This was built and created in violence. The way we treat women and those assigned female at birth was created in violence. That's where we start. How do we stop the violence? Mm-hmm. Am I saying throw away the speculum? No. But let's discover where it came from, how it came to be, and the way that it's used. How do we take the violence out of it? How do we look at obstetric violence and change it? If it happens to white-bodied women, then of course it happens to black-bodied women, and in even greater numbers. So actually decolonizing practice is understanding what colonized practice meant, yeah what it means how it has continued to be perpetuated through the very curriculum the tools the instruments of that colonization and then to i guess what you're saying is find the effect and solve for that so the effect has been violence or the effect is violence or, or um how do we how do we take the violence out of this whole um, chapter or phase then of, of a woman's journey. Because it's the legacy that we live with. When I work with clients, when I talk with people, when people talk about their birth traumas, etc., people are talking about the violence, the violence of the language that we use against people. Yeah. I'm just going to, and then all of a sudden a body is penetrated. Yeah, yeah. So there's no bodily autonomy. There's no consent because in a really nice way, you're, oh, look, I'm just going to. Yeah. I say to doctors all the time, if I have to have an injection, I never had blood taken as much as when I had my children. Um, And they say, it's going to be a sharp scratch. But it's not, is it? It's Mm. not a a scratch. It's a point of pain. Mm. And don't patronise me, tell me that it's scratch. I know what a scratch feels like. Mm. That. Bloody hurts. Yeah. That's a scratch. Yeah. So there's almost that there's also that kind of gaslighting in the language that, because we've all been yeah. really accustomed to thinking, oh yeah, here's my sharp scratch that really hurts me, but I'm yeah. just being a baby because it's just a sharp scratch. And 
yeah, you're just going to insert this thing that's really deeply uncomfortable and yeah. traumatizing, but I, I'm just going to have to just deal with it because we just have to deal with that thing, right? Vaginal exams, when a doctor or a midwife puts their fingers inside of you and rummages around so that they can decide how dilated they think you are. But people mm. have got different sized fingers. So one midwife mm. or doctor might come in and say, you're four centimetres and another will come in and say you're three and you'll be like wait why am I going backwards mm. but not just that but the you know let's just run me okay and then they take that information away with them mm. and then someone else will come and do it so that they have the information too yeah. when actually studies show that it there is no benefit to having your fingers up someone's vagina to decide how dilated they are mm. you know in a vaginal exam and so the woman's body is just treated just as this object from which to take out a second object. Mm. So actually, rather than thinking decolonizing, is it helpful to think what do, what do pre-colonial chapters of matricence include? Yeah. And, and, and what might those be? Because again, just uh, what I notice when I have conversations with people about the whole experience of being in a workplace, either the journey towards becoming pregnant. So some people I've spoken to going through IVF, some people trying for a long time, some people having um, mis miscarriages, that journey through to then having to articulate for a institution, I'm pregnant and that means different things for the institution to be treated as though, you know, you have to leave at this point and you're going to return at this point. Yeah. And then having had a child to have to kind of reintegrate back into the system, if you like, yes. is a series of um, of really kind of violent motions in and out that, that are really contrary to the human experience. Well, you know, they they are um, or they have pushed out paid maternity leave into sub-Saharan Africa. Why do they need our system? What happened to when um, in pre-colonial days, in pre-industrial days, when what happened was you had your baby, someone came around you, people came around you, no one was shoving fingers. Do you know, I only watched a little bit of it at the beginning and I just couldn't because oh, things like that do my head in. Call the midwife. Mm. <laughs> if you want to see how practice has changed people would be there and um just around this pregnant woman I remember one one scene in my mind particularly where a woman gave birth to a premature baby a tiny baby and the hospitals had just invented incubators but the incubator came to the house and then was taken back to the hospital and this woman, she was non-English speaking, I think she was Italian, just refused. She just said the baby, she needed to, to stay on her. And mm. she just fed the baby tiny bits of milk. And she said, if the baby goes into hospital, I'll never see my baby again. Because they would have taken the baby away from her to do things. So instead of leaving people to have their babies, not needing to look at machines, not needing to put fingers up vaginas, Instead of just watching their body and saying, oh, yeah, something's changing here. Okay, get the things, the warming things that we need for this mother, this parent and this baby and bring them. Now we look at a machine that's, no, you're not really contracting. Mm. No, you're not. Too. We've stopped listening to, and that's what would happen pre-colonialism. People would watch and listen to the mother. Mm. Now they watch and listen to machines, but the machine isn't birthing. Mm. And then you have inventions coming on. Let's teach men what it feels like to give birth. And then those men go, oh my God, this is inhuman. Let's invent something to stop that kind of pain. But they're looking at pain in a very uh, polar way. Instead of saying, oh, these surges and contractions come with endorphins and oxytocin, they say, how do we stop this pain but no one's looking to what do we do to bring the things that the pain is causing or the sensation is causing 
in the body. Mm. Pre-colonial childbirth was very much about sitting and listening and being with. The word midwife means with woman. Mm. But in practice now, a midwife is very much an obstetric nurse because the midwife comes under the purview of the doctor. And we know that, you know, professional structures have their institutional biases, have their uh, power imbalances, etc. And that's where the whole colonial thing comes from, you know, because it's about power. Colonialism is about, I know how to do your thing, your life better than you do. Mm -hmm. So midwifery, the practice of sitting with somebody as their body changes, as they go through the various phases, as they're giving birth, is something that has, would you say that's kind of, is that something that's faded? I'm just trying to think back to when I was pregnant and around before I gave birth, the sort of midwifery is different, I guess, to notions of midwifery previously. Midwives don't have time to sit down with the person who's giving birth because if they're sitting down, then they're getting in trouble because they should be doing, doing, doing. We live in a society that says that the only way that you're productive is by constant motion, constant doing. We have a shortage of midwives. So you can't sit with this woman because you need to be in three other rooms at the same time. Mm. But even before the pre pre labor like the early days of the earlier days of pregnancy, what would midwifery look like? I'm just interested in that as a kind of, as a role even. That was supposed to be your safe space to go to, to talk about your concerns and how you feel and to get support and to be signposted to places of help. Mm. But now those appointments are like, you you got your five, 10 minutes or you've got 15 minutes. Now be non-English speaking, your 15 minutes has shrunk to five Mm. because there's you, there's the interpreter, if there's an interpreter or an interpreter at the end of the line and the midwife. So Mm. suddenly your 15 minutes becomes five minutes because there isn't enough time to tell you all the things. So let's just tell you what we want you to do. So now Mm. you have no choice because you don't know that you've got choice because I don't have time to give you choice. Mm. Midwives used to visit you at home But now everything, even post-nasal checks now that used to be done in the home, you have to take yourself and your baby out of your nest. You have to take your vulnerable newborn into a hospital. But what do we have in the language of society when it comes to pregnancy, when it comes to pre-birth? You're not sick, you're just pregnant. Mm. How many times have you worked with someone who's pregnant, who's overworking, doing too much so that they're not seen as lazy, particularly if they're black or brown skinned. They don't want to be seen as lazy because they've been hit by nausea, they've been hit by exhaustion. They just need to be still, they can't lift that thing, they can't move the other. And people say, don't be so stupid, you're not sick, you're just pregnant. Mm. As though somehow sickness, which keeps you still and pregnancy is separated. When you're pregnant and you're growing a body and your body's working really hard, it's already exhausted by the time it does the things that society wants it to do. Go to work, pick up the kids, feed your children, clean your house, do that second job, pay for everything. So what we've done is we've pushed women into productivity in absolutely every way that doesn't involve rest, which is just frustrating because then by the time that pregnant body gets to the birthing place, it's already exhausted before it does the thing that it's been working towards doing. Yeah, and then within our current system, People are returning to work within a window of, I don't know, three, six, 12 months. And again, if we're to just go back to sort of pre-colonial concepts of parenting, bringing children into the world, society was structured differently anyway, but there is a there seems to be a hard transition from 
nest as you say to the workplace that yeah. that presumably would have looked gentler would have been supported by more people yeah well look at the things that we celebrate at the moment we all go oh my god isn't this amazing this mp brought their baby mm. into into government in a sling and is breastfeeding whilst doing the oh my god this is great yay mm. us mm. but that's what was taken from us mm. instead of working within the family doing the things that you do and just it all just remains connected it all has been set up it's historically white male heteronormative mm. and basically your body, a woman's body doesn't belong to the woman, it belongs to a man. Your brother, your father, your husband, your, you know, not us, we, this is me and mine. Mm. We go into workspaces, but we have to put the baby down because our bodies aren't supposed to be for them, except that we are supposed to do everything for them. But first, we have to fall into the the historically white male heteronormative pattern, which is you will just continue to do. Mm. What What is that old joke, as it were? You know, you've got to be a whore in the bedroom. You've got to be a virginial mother outside. You've got to be all of these things, but none of the things that you want to be, whether you choose to be those things or not. Mm. If you are enjoying the podcast, I think you're going to love our weekly email series, Strategy Sundays. Each week we send you an email that includes a tangible strategy that you can use to get moving on your organisation's approach to diversity, equity and inclusion. You can sign up using the link in our show notes. So you mentioned the kind of the role of the midwife has changed. How does the role of the doula either do some of the things that the role of the midwife used to do or do things completely differently. So a doula doesn't do anything medical or clinical. So she does all of the things that, because I think doulas have always been, we just, it just has a title now. Yeah. And I think doulas like midwives have always just been with women. You know, you would have the someone who was feeding them, the someone who was hydrating them, the singer, the prayer, mm. the guardian at the door. Mm. And the doula more and more is becoming an advocate. And I think if your clients are black and brown, you definitely need to be an advocate for them because the system, what COVID has done, has allowed so much bad practice to come back up. There are midwives, there are hospitals who are still desperate to go back to when those people weren't allowed in. And I'm not just talking the doulas, I'm talking about family members, I'm talking about right. clients. Right. You know, let's just keep this to our way. Oh, but we had such camaraderie on the ward between the... Mate, if you've got a group of hostages in a, a room, they're going to bond together because they have to. It's not, ooh, happy days, this is what we choose. And so doulas are, are slowly being sort of sidelined in some ways. Doulas are finding that they can't just go in with that white privilege attitude of I'm just going to sit with you and be with you they're learning the hard way that they actually have to advocate and say, this is what this person is talking about. Mm. But look at women throughout their experience, pregnancy, birth, work, constantly having to advocate just to get the basics. Mm. You know, did you know that when a, a white woman has a child, her employability drops by 5%, but for black women, it drops by 11%. Mm. A mother with two children takes 26% less home than a father. A father's, in fact, then go on to get a 22% increase yeah. in their money. Now add a layer of black. We don't talk about money. Women don't talk about money. And so if women don't talk about money then it's easy for men to earn more. And we've had the forced mandatory reporting for the gender pay gap. And there's a group called the ethnicity pay gap. And they are campaigning 
for mandatory reporting on that as well. Mm. So when we look at black and brown bodied women in the workplace, maternity practices coming back into the workplace, mm-hmm. not only are the, is the dirty done on them because they're women, but it's doubled down because they're black mm. and they will earn a lot less. Black people, black women are one in eight are in financially insecure jobs. And so when they get the motherhood penalty, the lowering of wage, the lowering of employability, it increases greatly. Twice as many black women, there's no flexible working. And on re-entry to work, they're seen as less committed. They're discriminated against. They're more likely to be passed over for promotion. And on the other side of the coin, because of cultural mores and the things that we say and do and teach our families, they're less likely to take up childcare. And childcare is already in a shocking state, which isn't, you know, where workplaces and government aren't making allowance for childcare, but black women are less likely to take it up. And if they're less likely to take up childcare, then they're less likely to go back into the place of work or they're more likely to... um, confirm the bias that they are less committed to work yeah so less likely to take up childcare in what like state-funded childcare or what yeah or support okay because we look after our own don't we and we're mm-hmm. also suspicious of other people black children are eight times more likely to be taken away by social services yeah 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 so there were some systemic reasons that continue to keep <laughs> we could say black families from using some of those services yeah um there are certainly i mean when, when we look at the, the kind of communication that you're talking about around uh, signposting of services that either doesn't take place pre-birth but also continues to not take place post-birth um a lack of awareness of the i mean and this came out of the reports that have been done uh, generally around the the maternity leave period that women have a lack of awareness about uh, grants about funds about where to get a, you know additional yeah. support for funding for childcare for all of those things there isn't actually a kind of collated database or hasn't been a database even of where you can get access to all no. of these things so it's almost as though people are being actively prevented from accessing any yeah. of that support um but then again the statistics when you look at the experiences of black women worse again And I wanted to ask you something about the role of doulas, because that role of advocacy and of sitting with is evidently missing in the system. But what's your experience um, of the of supporting black and brown mothers as a doula? Presumably working with a doula is something you have to pay for. It's not something that is funded. So what's like what what are statistics? Are there any statistics around the take up of doulas or the you know who? who is bringing a doula into their birthing experience? Do you know, there aren't any, and it's funny because now that you said that, it's like, oh, that's so glaringly obvious. It's something I need to do. Start to collect stats about black women and um, doulas. Until very recently, when people thought about doulas, they thought for white middle-class women. Mm. And white middle-class women don't think that black women have money, even rich black women. They don't think we have they have money. So it would be difficult for black women to take up doulas. Mm. I heard just recently, though, that black women don't want someone advocating for them. And I need to to get to the bottom of where that has come from and to find out why. Because if you can have an advocate, have an advocate. And a really good advocate knows how to sit back whilst you are advocating for yourself and they know how to fill in the gap Mm. with doulas. They understand more of the hospital jargon, the thing that you might miss. But a good doula will sit back and you do this. And if you need the advocacy, they're there. And if you don't, they're there. They're constantly holding you and um, cheering you on. The reason black women use doulas is because they recognise that the system is biased against them. They know that when they go into their hospital appointments and things, they will not be offered choices. For example, I went with my daughter when she was pregnant with her son 
to her booking in appointment. And the midwife said, these are the things you will do. And I said, these are the things she will do? Or these are the things that she can decide to do or not? And the midwife said, no, no, I gave her a choice. I said, you didn't. Oh, well, who are you? I said, well, as well as being her mother, I am a doula. And then her entire attitude towards the booking appointment changed. Mm. She started talking about choice. Here are some things that we offer that you can do or not do. Mm. But until that point, this is what it is. Mm. Black women, we're taught not to question doctors and things because, you know, they're the doctor. That's the midwife. They know what they're doing. In recent years, more and more women, black women are taking up doulas and saying, actually, hold on. If I'm starting to question other areas of my life, why wouldn't I question this area too? And then there's the misconception that doulas are really expensive. And this is perpetuated particularly by the white saviors who are like, and I'm going to do this free for 100 black women. I'm going to do this free. So black women are like, oh, freeness. White women are like, oh, they have no money. And yet we can buy a £2,000 buggy. Mm. We can set aside a budget of £3,000 to buy things for this baby that this baby probably doesn't even need. Most black and white families that I've worked with buy a shed load of stuff and use hardly any of it. Mm. So there's a perception that we can't afford doulas, but we can afford the things that we want. Now, what's that Barclay card advert? This costs this, this costs that, but peace of mind or whatever it is, priceless. <laughs> yeah. And I say to people, buggies cost this much, cots cost this much, decorating the nursery costs this much, a doula beside you whilst you're birthing this child, priceless. Mm. We can afford the things we want to, but there's a misconception that we won't be able to afford it. It's just the purview of rich white women, so I won't get myself a doula. It sounds like it's it's kind of perceived as a luxury item. Like, yeah. I had myself this service, as opposed to... I, I was watching some people recently, some friends of different people I know have, have had babies, and just kind of, you know, you follow people on social media and they're showing pictures of their babies and their pregnancy and all of those things, and... The different people I know around the world in different communities have different levels of support. And so the the, the normality, the, the just kind of normalcy of one woman I know whose mum moved in before the baby was born, yeah. who was there when the baby was born and was there for three months after the baby was born in the house with the family for the whole time. Totally normal. Like that's the role. That's the, like that's what we do essentially that is sitting with the mother isn't it it's been yeah. you know nourishing her and cooking for the rest of the family and making sure that she was looked at that she was mothered yes. as she brought a baby into the world and that's what allows her to do the things that we all say that we should be able to do with our babies yeah which is get that time to breast and chest feed them if we choose to rest and recover our bodies mm. and not be running up and down the street doing all of these jobs for all of these people, mm. making cups of tea for visitors that, that come to see the new baby when we should be basically queens on our throne. Mm. Mm. So the doula role is something that would have existed in our, like in our family, in our yes. community, in our, in our locale. It could be repackaged as a luxury, but in actual fact, it's a it's a right. Can I go as far as to say it's a right? Yeah. And it's like childcare. You know, the reason we need childcare is because we're forced into white patriarchal work patterns, mm. leaving children behind. So when we leave the children behind, the children need to be cared for. So we pay for childcare. Mm. So if we can understand that. How do we not understand that we have to pay for doulas to do the thing that we would have done anyway? Within the community, yeah. Because we still need to pay our bills, right? Yeah, yeah. I had an advocate when I gave birth. My mother was an advocate when I gave birth um, at the moments when I needed her to be. And I hadn't, as a 
I, I have a healthy mistrust, I think, of the medical of the general medical system. Mm-hmm. My experience hasn't been one in which I've been necessarily listened to on many occasions yes. in that environment. So I have a kind of relatively healthy distrust. My experience of having a child uh, was okay within the system ish I wasn't Mm -hmm. listened to of course but you know it was it was it was okay afterwards I had to be very vehement about the choices I was making or not making to take him to medical appointments and for various things reasons but vehement to the point of you know sort of shouting he is not I am not doing this yeah and I was lucky to have an advocate at that point. But I then basically just tried to get myself out of the whole system as quickly as possible. That was my, does that make sense? I kind of, I yes. never have to be in it because i got to give birth, but I do not want anything to do with it. And I'm out of here as soon as I can. But it marks again, a very almost aggressive transition, kind of both in and then back out again, in which I was always slightly nervous that I wasn't connected to anything regarding him as an infant because I was nervous of the system Mm. and there wasn't any alternative so I guess this is a long way around saying do you see any alternative systems structures places that women who have that experience of not quite trusting but also wanting to continue to have support with infants can go what does it even look like they're things that we have to create ourselves But we're so busy operating in our different silos Mm. and not coming together. So I look around the birth world and I'm constantly saying, we need to bring these things together. But, you know, this one's like, well, you know, I'm doing this. I can be the only one because we have been socialized within a white society and think in exceptionalism. Only I can do this. Only I, me, myself and I, rather than coming together. And yet there are pockets of groups of people that are doing things, pockets of, so I co-founded an online safe space, antenatal, postnatal safe space Mm -hmm. called Birthing in Colour for black and brown bodied women where they could just come together once a month on the screen and talk about things without fear that someone's listening in who's going to judge them and report them and make moves to take their child away. This is why we stay so unsupportive because we will never be right in a white system. And so we're just trying to keep our heads down, but that leads to isolation. So we need to start to create those groupings where we are together. And of Mm. course, when we create groupings, when we are together, white-bodied people are like, oh, I need to be part of that. What are you doing over there? Why am I not involved? Mm. And some groups will say, yeah, actually, do you know, we should be wider. And then as soon as they open it, black women and brown women stop being centred again. So there are pockets of spaces. And there are things that I think that we can be looking at to protect ourselves and campaigns that we should be joining, like the ethnicity pay gap campaign Mm -hmm. because if we join that if we bring that into law then it makes it easier as black body people want to earn enough money to pay for the childcare if we want childcare Mm. it's always about money once you crack the money thing things start to open but as black body people we need to find ways to come together and say right i had someone message me the other day do i know any black mother and baby groups because each Mm. time she'd been to a mother and baby group she's felt so uncomfortable because we don't go to those things Mm. i mean i was the only person in a you know in a city the size of well the size of bristol which is where i was it's a big city it's a multicultural city and i was the only black person in my prenatal groups and postnatal groups and i didn't go to the mother and baby group because I was the only black person in the end and it, and it didn't feel comfortable and I didn't and I didn't feel I felt very odd in that setting and I th- and I think it can sort of underestimated the intensity of the way that you really feel things when you've just had a baby yeah. <laughs> so so it's like it's all of the normal level of I'm not comfortable I don't fit in this space with the with the additional 
rawness of of giving birth and i really i really worry about black and brown women in cities like that whose experience of the whole machine is one that reminds them of their difference and i think that's why we need to sort of actually take note of the sister circles as they're often called mm-hmm. that are around us and join them because they are they can be spaces where you can breathe out you know, mm. and I think, oh, I don't need to go to a sister circle. I'm doing this, that, and the other. But actually, sometimes those circles are exactly what we need. Mm. We need to pay attention to people like the NAP ministry, yeah. who was telling black women, come on, you deserve rest too. Pause and be still. That's right. Rest is a resistance. <laughs> Thank you, Tricia Hershey. You know, this is what we need for people to just say, yes, oh yes, I'm about to get that book, Decolonizing Therapy. I think, and you and I were talking just before this call, that you're right, that we, black queens, are in ascendance. And because of that, there's a lot of attack coming at us. And it's on us to look to one another, grab hold of one another, and keep ascending together. What's that? You see, you can tell I've got children finding Nemo when Nemo's <laughs> dad and Dory are caught in this big shoal of fish and all the fish are going up, going up. So obviously it's easy for the net to bring them up. And he's like, no, we want to break free. We've got to go down. We've got to, you've got to break that mentality that we've just got to keep going the way society sends mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. and do what we're doing and just go against it so that as we all turn as one, that net breaks and we're free to go. So it's kind of the opposite analogy, really. But if you if we want to be rising together, we need to turn in the same direction together. Mm, we need to grab yeah. hold of one another. And that takes us right throughout the whole period, the perinatal period. What's going on at your workplace? What are the the maternal, paternal policies? What is the ethnic pay gap? Which means there's probably going to be a difference in the maternal, paternal policy structures for black and brown body people. What are they? How are we all going to join together to say, no, if it's good enough for this white man, then it's good enough for this black woman. How do we get equality and equity and justice in this, mm. in all of these areas? And it starts way before we're pregnant mm. because we know that the way society is set up, it's constantly pushing us down. And if we think it's going to change when we get to pregnancy, well, we're very, very sadly mistaken. And I think there's something else that you're saying, and this is something we've talked about before. For me, when when it comes to policy, the experience of um, the people in an organisation like a school uh, is going to look very different because we have people who are in senior executive roles and we have people who are in cleaning and um, and kitchen staff roles and the majority of cleaning and kitchen roles in many of the schools I've worked in have been inhabited by black and brown women yeah. and they have so they're the most poorly paid in the institution and therefore and often the most then they're, they're not always contracted members of staff so they're on they're on kind of those other flexible type of contracts insecure um, and so they're therefore their maternity leave their mater- the, the way that the maternity policy is applied is, is is insecure but also something that we've talked about before is the you know there's an intersection around blackness but there's also I was a single parent so what does it look like for single black parents and there my drive to prove that I was just as good <laughs> came out ultra hard so yes. I'm not going to send my child to, to childcare because I'm a single parent now I'm going to do all of the things coming yeah. out what's the situation for people also in terms of our policies around um, separated families where we have uh, people trying to co-parent where we have you know black and brown people in our community as well co-parenting asking for time to go and what does it feel like to be a black man in the organization and say um I, I don't live with my kids but I have them this weekend and I really want to be able to leave earlier to go and pick them up from school how yeah how confident does that person feel in talking about their family dynamic with their line managers so to me there are a whole ho- host of of societal norms 
that need to be broken down and examined in order to create policy that works for human beings. Yeah, well, it's a white male dominated model, isn't it? And we work the way they want us to work, which is like them, which is why it affects every area of our lives. We have to find ways to speak up, join together and speak up in each of these areas. So if we're looking at, you know, if you want to talk about the history of um, colonization in maternity policy, it's right there in what we've just said. You yeah. know, there is there is no space. And if you are black and brown bodied, you are more likely to be in an insecure job. And flexibility isn't something that we are afforded. When COVID happened, the white midwives were able to stay home, but the black ones feared retribution and punishment, and so they stayed. It's no wonder that the first eight victims mm. of uh, COVID in the NHS were black mm. and brown, mm. you know, and the rates were higher for us. So all of these policies, they need to be questioned and they need to be questioned with a multi-intersectional lens. Mm. Okay, what does this mean if I'm a woman? Mm. What does this mean if I'm a black woman? What does this mean if I'm a black man? What does this mean if I'm part of a two-parent family? What does it mean if I'm part of co-parenting in a separated mm. family, like you said? So we have to question the policies and the policies need to be tested. How does is that fit for purpose for these members of our organisation? Mm. But of course, people are only interested in that white patriarchal model. As long as it works for them, then everyone else can muddle through. Well... The title, the name of this podcast has changed to Nothing Without Us. And the premise really is that I'm constantly asking leaders to go back to policy and to ensure that they do work for the people, but nothing without us. So when did you last invite a black woman who's just returned from maternity leave into your office to say, tell me about your experience? And tell me about how our maternity leave policy made a difference to your experience yeah. and how it left you in a better state than when it found you and how it's been beneficial to yeah. your enjoying having your first, second or third child. And um, that's my hope for this podcast. <laughs> Mars, that's what I'm going out there with. Yeah. Um, that's my invitation to people is that there are all of these people in the institution who will be happy to talk to you about their experiences of your policy but mm. it can't be created in a vacuum and it can't be created without them you're out there in the world beyond one institution but working across many is there anything that you're seeing that is um, a glimmer to the kind of a, the direction of travel a hopeful direction of travel either around maternity care particularly for for black mothers black and brown mothers or other marginalized groups of people what what are you what are you hopeful or optimistic about, if anything? <laughs> I'd said to somebody the other day, I'm just so cynical about everybody and everything right now. Um, what am I hopeful for? Okay, I'm hopeful that um, the black activists are continuing to push their campaigning to not be sidetracked by other important issues in the world. I don't think we can all fight all the things. So I'm hopeful that there are black activists in the maternity space who are still fighting for black bodied women and brown bodied women. Honestly, we start with black bodied women, now the brown bodied women and activists are rising up too, because we know once a black woman does it, everybody goes, oh my God, we can do this stuff. So that's what I'm hopeful for. Mm. Um, there's a lot of talk in this, the maternity space nationally, in the news, et cetera, about shortfalls and things. I'm hopeful that that will start to see change, but for it to affect black-bodied people, we need to get involved in it and we need to say, hang on, how does this affect black women, brown women? And make sure that the policy changes, like you say, are with us 
and for us. Mm. So that's my glimmer of hope. I like glimmers. I like glimmers. <laughs> <laughs> Mars, thank you very much. I know that we we always have the same conversation when we talk. Feels like the same conversation circling round. I think it's important to listeners to note that it is the same conversation and it will continue to be the same conversation until things start to change. So we no longer need to have the conversation. Yeah, yeah. And that's why we keep having it is because it it's it needs to be had. So let's keep going at it yeah. until we find out exactly what it is and what we need to change and change that. Yeah, thank you. Um, we're going to put your details into the show notes and I just wanted to, to say that in the show notes we'll include your uh, links to your coaching work you work with black women and many of the things that we're talking about are about the seasons of a woman's life the seasons of a black woman's life the whole matricence season is one that you can coach with (laughs) you can coach people through uh, wherever they are in in that season so we'll put details of your coaching um, and ways of connecting with your coaching Um, as well as your birth activism work in the show notes. But once again, thank you very much for for joining me. It's lovely to see you again. You're most welcome. I'm sure I'll see you again soon. There are a whole host of awareness weeks and months that support this season's topic of pregnancy and maternity. The season goes out during Women's History Month and will fall either side of International Women's Day, which this year will take place on Friday, March the 8th. National Adoption Week usually takes place in the second week of November. For 2024, it is likely to follow the same pattern. Baby Loss Awareness Week takes place in October every year. In 2024, it's likely to follow the same pattern and will culminate as ever in a wave of light. Black Maternal Health Month doesn't have a fixed date, but if it follows last year's pattern, will take place at the end of September and the beginning of October 2024. National Fertility Awareness Week will take place at the end of October and the beginning of November 2024. And finally, Menopause Awareness Month will take place during October 2024, with October the 18th recognised as World Menopause Awareness Day. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.